painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. In episode three of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs, Jenny and I talk about our second portion of hip and pelvic floor dysfunction and how they relate. And in this episode, we answer the questions that several of you post to us on Instagram. And the topics range from what exercises should you do to positions with intercourse and positioning on the toilet and how to urinate without pushing. So I hope you enjoy. If you have any questions, shoot us an email or message us on social media. Hope you enjoy. Hello, Jenny. Hey, Jocelyn. How's it going? Oh, it's going wonderful now that I am launched. Well, not really launched, but it's Friday of my first week completely on my own. How are you? I am great. So I know we talk about it every episode. I'm super excited for you. So before we get started, can you just tell our listeners um, where they can find all of your information? Because you are putting out some amazing stuff and I look forward to seeing it every day. So just tell us where we can find you on Facebook, on Instagram, and if you're on any other social media platform, how can they find you? Um. So I am, you can find me on Instagram at the period vagina doc. I'm on Facebook and I'm going to be moving more onto my private Facebook group. So to find that, that will be posted on my website shortly, but it's also on my personal Facebook page, which is public. I am located to be I'm located in Phoenix or Scottsdale area. So if you're around, you can find me here. And then shortly I'll be on Pinterest. So within the next few days, other than that, um, people can contact me uh, for a virtual consulting session. And then uh, soon I'll be launching a few online courses that's just independent online. And then also a self-guided like, virtual coaching and online. 
Man, girl, you are breathing straight fire over there. I want to back up for a second. So you mentioned your Facebook group. I'm a part of it. And so I'm loving everything you're putting there, but you didn't tell us the name. So if people wanted to search for that, how do they search for it? It is the pelvic floor support group for female athletes and active women. Excellent. And then is it a closed group and you just have to give them permission to join? Yeah. Closed group. And there's three questions, preferably answer the questions, but if you don't answer them, I'm, I'm not one of those really disgruntled group owners that will say, no, you can't come in here. That's good. I've been That's denied good. by so many Facebook groups. I'm just over that. Like you oh, just got to start your own then. Yeah. Goodness. Jenny, you so, said you were great, but I don't necessarily believe that. Um, tell us what you've been doing all week. Oh man, just bearing my nose in statistics homework uh, per every week. I was down in Fort Worth last weekend for my grants class, um, but I got to see a lot of old friends. I went to this amazing place that had vegan ice cream. Um, I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast, but for some health reasons, I've gone non-dairy. This is almost the end of month three. And the thing I miss most is ice cream. And I mean, they make some good substitutes where if you go in thinking like, this isn't going to taste like ice cream, but it'll taste okay. It tastes pretty good. Uh, Jocelyn, this vegan ice cream they had in Fort Worth tasted like real ice cream. It was Wait. like the pinnacle of my month. Oh my goodness. Have you ever had vegan cheese? Because vegan cheese is my favorite. Oh, it's so good. So that's the one thing that I haven't really been able to get on board with. It just kind of freaks me out. Like when I read it and it says nut cheese, I just don't ever want nuts to be associated with cheese but if you said it's pretty good maybe i'll uh, get up some courage and and try something out do you recommend a specific brand um okay man what is it starts with a d i just had some today let me look in the fridge is it dia yes dia their yogurt is actually pretty good as well so i'll yeah. have to check that out at the store tomorrow something but to try. so we're back here on this sunday evening um, it's actually Friday for us right now for recording, but we are in part two of either a two or three part series. We'll kind of see how today goes. And um, we started part one last time where we were talking about the relationship between the hip and the pelvic floor. Um, Jocelyn put out a call for questions and thank you guys so much. We got lots of responses. So today we want to take the episode to just go through these questions and try to get you guys some answers. So Jocelyn, I'm just going to go through the list of questions here, okay? So the first question is, um, my hip pain goes back and forth after a labral repair. What are some favorite exercises? So I'm going to ask the question with a question, and then I'll basically just talk about what some different things to try. So first thing is, what do you mean back and forth? Is it you're getting pain and then it goes away, and you're getting pain and then it goes away? My second question would be, what do you, what kind of labral repair did you have? Was there a specific approach that was performed? Um, third would be, is it a mobility issue or is it like a strength issue? And then fourth would be, is there, do, is there any issues with the pelvic floor or your back? Or like, it, are, do you, can you say that you're having also any issues with these hip flare-ups associated with also bouts of painful intercourse or bouts of urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. Tricky thing with labor repairs and hip pain. And then if you are, if you've had a, 
a child or more or not, there's so much referral patterns that overlap with the two. So understanding the patterns is key. And so if you know that you always have a flare after you do the hip 80, like the hips, something squeezing your hips towards one another, that tells me a different story than if you're uh, having issues after squatting or something like that. Would you agree, Jenny? Yeah, I would. So I like all those questions. And with some of the questions that you all asked us, we're going to do our best to answer them. But like Jocelyn just said, questions usually beget more questions. So per our disclaimer, please don't use this in lieu of medical advice or a true assessment by a physical therapist, a chiropractor, um, a physician, whoever is your trusted healthcare professional. But let's go to the question. So are there some favorite exercises? And I know that you and I both posted a couple of our favorite hip exercises on our Instagram accounts. Yeah. Um, but if you had to classify maybe not your favorite exercise, but what types of exercises would you maybe recommend for this person? And let's just say, hypothetically, they're not having a ton of pelvic floor issues. Maybe they did. They've learned how to relax. So this truly is kind of a biomechanical hip issue. Um, I'm going to go with balance because balance is so often overlooked. So yeah, I show you and I both showed some things on Instagram, but I didn't really go spend, uh, I guess I did do some some of the standing stuff. So standing on one leg and being able to maintain hip control while you're moving your other limbs or moving your upper back or your head or being able to maintain hip control with uh, closing your eyes or standing on an unstable surface. So a lot of balance work with an emphasis around the hip. And when you say an unstable surface, what do you mean by that? So standing on a pillow, for example, or standing, if you're living in the desert and you don't have grass, standing in the rocks. I think Louie's really excited about that. And can I just say, I'm surprised that my two dogs, so I have two dogs, they're petite mini golden doodles and their names are Beast and Yoda. Um, they're running around like crazy men right now, but they're not actually barking. But uh I'm thinking that maybe when we start bringing guests on the show that they're going to, if they have dogs, the dog's going to have to be part of the show. What do you think? I agree. Louie always <laughs> be part of the show. <laughs> um, sorry, I digress. I just love dogs. <laughs> Anyways, so um, we talked about pillow as an unstable surface. Um, other things to think about too. So if you're in a gym, a BOSU ball, so kind of the big blue rubber balls with the black backs on them. Um, if you really want to get crazy, like I've seen in some ninja videos, you could get on like a physio ball or something, but oh, man. Warren, that could be pretty dangerous and could end up in some more injuries than you started out with. I would argue that if your balance is that good, you probably don't have a labral tear. <laughs> a labral tear. Unless it was um, a traumatic one. And so I think going along with the, the balance and the single leg activities, I think you and I talked about it a little bit beforehand. Can, can you see my dogs in the background now? <laughs> They're so cute. Oh my goodness. Um, but really working on single and double limb strengthening exercises. So yeah. not just working with both feet on the ground, but yeah. loading through the leg that you had the surgery on. Um, so that kind of brings us to our next question. So not from a labral perspective, but another surgical procedure. 
So the next question is, why are my hips tighter after I had my baby and I had my baby via C-section? So what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are, I'm going to share the first one and, and then I think we've read each other's mind that you can share the second. First is I think it's fascial restrictions from the underlying scar tissue development from the C-section. So, and Jocelyn, tell us a little bit more about what fascia is. So fascia is a type of tissue, non-muscular, and there's two different layers in the body. There's a uh, upper layer and a lower layer or deeper layer, and they house different like nerves, they house small vessels, and they basically connect your foot to your shoulder. And uh, when there is a procedure where you're puncturing through the tissues, Louis. Um, there's in the healing process other tissues that fill in via the what we know as scar tissue and so that nice sliding effect that originally was existing is it may not be moving as well once the scar and, and we have nerve endings in the fascia right yes yes there are and so if there's nerve endings, it would make a lot of sense then that if that tissue's not moving well, then you could potentially be experiencing some pain from that as well. Yeah. Right? Oh, there's Beast. He got excited about that. Beast really likes fascia a lot. Beast is a 10. <laughs> Beast is all of about nine pounds. Um, so What's I agree with you 100% about fascial restrictions and scar tissue restrictions, but what happens when our bodies can't move in a certain way because we're trying to protect tissue? Are you asking me that? I am asking oh, yeah. you that. So we kind of crouch or hunch over, so you're, and it's, think of the, the, older lady that is crouching over the grocery cart as she's walking in the grocery store. Uh, that was the first thing that popped in my head. Or the person that's not standing up fully from a squat. Um, when something hurts, we tend to orient our bodies that we're not pulling on that tissue as a, as a way to protect it. So that could be another, that's, that could be another reason. Would, would you, what do you think about that, Jenny? I really like your analogies because I think it paints a really clear picture in the in my mind anyways. So just kind of picturing somebody they're not standing up from a squat all the way or kind of an older woman hunched over. For hunched over, it's putting our hips in kind of a bent position. So of course they're going to feel tighter in that position. It's just like any position. There aren't bad positions, but if you can only get in one position and you're not able to get in another position, that can certainly become problematic and more so it can become painful. You know, the other thing is if, if moms are sitting more than they were ever sitting before too. So let's say you worked as a teacher and you're standing all day and then you just had a child and now you're sitting a lot of the time pumping or breastfeeding. Think about that shift. You're from standing, you're in a hip open position and now it, you're postpartum and you had a, and you had a C-section and you're sitting more. That's, that's right for tightness in your hips. 
So that kind of segues us into maybe my favorite question, because this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, and I, I think it probably will be yours as well. Uh, but somebody asked us, um, a day after sex, my hips are sore. Any suggestions for hip openers? What do you think? Okay, so since sex is brought up, who knows if we'll ever get into any other topic. Um, okay. Very true, very true. So let's just go through what positions is that elongate the pelvic floor tissue or stretch out the pelvic floor tissue. And those are when your legs are spread open. So that's hip abduction, abduction, and then like turned out to the side. Hip lateral rotation. So for all of our moms out there that have had babies, if you delivered laying on your back with your feet in stirrups, that's the position that we're talking about. Yeah. So if you're in that position for a long period of time, and let's say you're also with your hips flexed. So think about like, uh, so you're talking about a missionary position yeah. and maybe if your partner is a little bit bigger and they're pushing your hips towards your chest, that's really gonna put you in a lot of hip flexion, right? Yeah, so it's putting you in end range joint positions, like stretch, and then also stretched out positions. So my thing is, and, and Jenny, you can disagree or agree, whichever you think, uh, is we probably don't need to necessarily stretch after. It's almost like the tissue's already been very much stretched enough. Certainly, I agree. you have a massive orgasm, okay? What that Who doesn't want to have a massive orgasm? I love massive orgasms. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts there is I still wouldn't stretch the hips as my primary goal. I'd want to stretch the pelvic floor, which I would instruct differently just by intent only. I would not think of it as hip openers, though. I would almost change the plane that I'm stretching and have this, uh, have you lay on your stomach and stretch your hip flexors versus those abductors and lateral rotators. Or hip. And let's just back up for a second. Orgasms are certainly much more complex than this, but if you take orgasms down to a really basic level and we just say, what is an orgasm? It's really those pelvic floor muscles just contracting and relaxing really quickly. And so sometimes if you end that cycle on a relaxation, you're just gonna be really happy and your pelvic floor is gonna be really happy and your hips are probably gonna be pretty happy and you're just gonna go about your business. But if that cycle ends in a contraction, that's Jocelyn kind of where I start to think about what you said where, oh, maybe we're gonna need to do a little bit of stretching or not even stretching, but just kind of relaxation to get those muscles to reset in the pelvic floor afterwards. That's, we didn't talk about this, but this we should have. That's why we're talking about it right now. No. Um, yeah, so agree. Yeah, relaxation if you end in a more, a, you didn't reach total climax. Would that be a way to put it? Um, or it just ending on a, it was an interesting way you put that. So I think maybe jumping down the rabbit's hole a little bit, but maybe thinking more about our women that have pain with deep thrusting or that have pain with orgasm, 
that would be more of my thought that maybe the muscles aren't relaxing all the way, or maybe you feel like you're not having a very strong orgasm or it's an incomplete orgasm. Um, but I want to come back to sexual positions because if we think about again, those hips bent up a lot, the legs separated out, the legs turned out to the side. Again, that's missionary, which missionary is a fantastic position for a lot of things. But let's say you have a labral tear. Um, from experience, that is not an optimal position to have sex in, and it might not ever be an optimal position to have sex in. So I would really like to encourage our listeners to be a little adventurous um, and talk to your partner because communication is really important. Um, Susie Gronsky just did a, um, a podcast recently. Her podcast is In Your Pants with Uchenna Usai, who is also a WashU, uh, she did the Women's Health Residency. So shout out to WashU. Um, but if you wanna hear more about orgasms and pleasure, go listen to that podcast. Again, Susie Gronsky in your pants. Um, it was released last week, I think. It was amazing. Um, everybody should follow both of them. Dr. Uchenna Usai, and she's at UC Logic, um, and Susie Gronsky. Um, but, but anyways, so getting back to the topic of positions. So a really great position that I like to coach a lot of my patients and quite honestly, friends in, if you've had any kind of hip surgery, laying on your stomach and putting pillows under your hips, so maybe like two to three pillows, and just allowing your legs and your hips to relax for posterior entry, so entry from your partner from behind, that does not mean butt sex necessarily, or anal sex. That means the penis is going in the vagina with you laying on your stomach, um, but if anal entry is your thing, it's a great position for that as well. But that's a position that after hip surgery, I was able to have sex before I could walk just by using that position. So if you're just having some hip pain, try rolling over on your stomach and just see what happens. Jenny, I'm just thinking, I, you're just brilliant, like the smartest person I know. No, I, uh, I think sex positioning is something I've given a lot of thought to. Again, having gone through the surgery that I went through um, yeah. and having pretty significant um, limitations in my hip in terms of pain, range of motion, um, you still want to be intimate with your partner and some of those more traditional things or ways that you're accustomed to are no longer an option. So that's when you really start to explore. So another position that can be really good is a hands and knees position. And whether that's hands and knees on the bed, maybe you're standing bent over leaning on something um, with your feet kind of underneath you, just gives you a little bit more support. And then uh, the woman is in a little bit more control of what the hip position is. Or even um, a sideline position or what we call lap sitting. So one partner is sitting down and then the woman is on top of their partner, um, either facing towards or facing away. Facing away is going to be a little bit better for the hip because um, you're not going to have to bend it as much. Um, and so then I think from those positions, the next question that I get from some of my um, friends and patients is, well, in some of these positions, I feel like I'm not really able to get clitoral stimulation, so it's really hard for me to orgasm. Um, and that's true. That's a very legitimate concern. So in those situations, what I typically like to recommend, and it's completely at 
each individual's comfort level is that's when you can start bringing in toys. So even just a simple like egg shaped vibrator um, or even using your own hands for masturbation during sex is a really good way to get clitoral stimulation while you're still having penetrative sex. And some people are not okay with that. Their partners are not okay with that. And then that's where that's a much deeper issue. Um, and or not deeper issue, but beyond kind of musculoskeletal considerations. So that would be a discussion with your partner. But if your partner is cool with it, I say go for it. Yeah. Something that I have to do is I have to have my hips supported. If I'm any in any like on my back position, uh, if I have if my hips are active, it they just feel so tight. So just having pillow support on the sides, but then also uh, sometimes I'll prop my pelvis up. Um, that helps. And then I mean I, that just I don't I don't have the the issues with the tightness afterwards. So. This is a very specific question, but for the pillows that you use, do you like to use puffier pillows or flatter pillows, firmer pillows? What works well for you? You know, I need height because if I'm at like, my, my, I, my hips are flexible, but like in order for me to completely relax, because I have an issue with just like my pelvic floor tightening up, my hips have to be com completely relaxed. So if it's too fluffy that it just flattens out, then that doesn't work. But it has to be high enough. Firm is firm, but not too firm. So like some memory foam? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless it just, Jenny, I buy the cheapest stuff because I'm poor. So the memory foam. You and me both, sister. The memory foam that I've gotten has been disappointing. So I can't. Maybe memory foam. Maybe we can talk to Salvation Army about like stocking some better pillows. I've been at Goodwill uh, three times in the last two weeks. Did you find anything good? Uh, unfortunately, I, oh, I got the sheet for my videos. <laughs> nice. But I've been looking for furniture and no, there has been other stuff that I've been wanting, but I'm just trying to get rid of stuff. So I'm not buying really. So you're supplying Goodwill. You're not actually getting anything from Goodwill. Well, I've gone with the intent of buying if they had what I needed. All right. All right. So we got two more questions here. Um, so the next question that I'm going to shoot at you, Jocelyn, is um, why do I pee faster or slower sometimes? And then our um, listener said, no, I'm not pushing when my stream is faster. So first, before you answer the question, tell our listeners what that is, what power peeing is, and why it's not good. Okay. So power peeing is when you purposely push your urine out so that you're basically get the job done faster. Uh, it, this isn't a good thing because for two reasons, in my opinion. One is when you're pushing you're increasing your the work of your abdominals and your pelvic floor works with your abdominals and so as your pelvic floor is contracting or, or there's activity in the pelvic floor it increases resistance to what urine has to move through to leave your body and so it's like essentially you're trying to 
the way I describe it is you're closing a door and you need the door to be open. Beast is back, you guys. He's really, really he's, intrigued by this. He's creeping. It's so funny. Okay, so that's that one. That's the reason. The other reason is like, and I, I think about uh, pushing as a way, it's like you're without knowing it, training your bladder to, to get stronger essentially. So when you increase outflow resistance, and maybe you can help me put this in lay terms, your, the detrusor muscle, the bladder muscle, the, the, what we don't have control of has to contract harder to overcome the resistance of the muscle that prevents discontinuous urine loss. That's the urinary, external urinary sphincter, urogenital sphincter. And so it has to get stronger to, to create um, more pressure to overcome that outlet pressure. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically, well, if you're closing the opening, you're gonna have to push harder to get things through a smaller opening. Yeah, and so your muscle, your body's smart and adapts to that. So the, the, the more thick your bladder muscle is, the less compliant and pliable or stretchy it's going to be. So I take that to mean that if it's less stretchy, then you're going to, over time, lose your ability to hold as much urine. Yeah. So you're going to get the urge that you need to go to the bathroom sooner because that bladder can't stretch. So that might end up in a urinary urgency or frequency situation where you're going to the bathroom a lot more than you normally would. Is that a fair statement? Yes. And then the other reason is if you're pushing, you're innately could be straining your pelvic floor, elongating the pelvic floor. And if it's already weak and a little flimsy, then we don't really need to be restretching something that's already doesn't need stretched. So for our listener, they said they're definitely not pushing. So then why would the speed of their stream change if they're not pushing to pee? Okay. So we could talk about, I could talk about this for a long time, but let's just, let's just keep it simple first and just think about culture. Subconsciously, we're so in a hurry all the time. So I don't know about you, but for me, I am consciously just like contracting my pelvic floor just because I'm like, I need to get done. I need to get done. And I'm not actually pushing, but that subconscious, like inability to just be present on the toilet. I have more just tightness in my pelvic floor. So that means my, my, my flow is a little bit slower, but then whenever I'm just like in the moment and relaxed and just my belly's relaxed, which some people they're contracted in their belly and they don't even know it. So there's a little bit more activity in the pelvic floor, even though they're not pushing. Um, yet when I'm relaxed and just let it come out, it, it's a different flow. And we then, all know what that flow feels like. Yeah. And then sometimes it's just like, okay, I didn't pee for six hours and I drank a lot of water and I, uh, my bladder is way too full. And so the bladder muscles trying to squeeze, but it's really, really, uh, stretched. So it's like trying to pick up a heavy weight and it's trying, it's trying, it's just, slowly getting there. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and so for our listeners, normal time between voids, what's recommended is two to four hours. So that can be affected by a lot of different things. If you drink a ton of fluid, you're probably going to have to go to the bathroom sooner than that. If you drink or eat foods that are considered to be bladder irritants or things that kind of irritate the wall of the bladder, the bladder doesn't like it and it's like, ugh, get out of me. I don't want you in here. That might give you some urgency and frequency to go to the bathroom, but six hours is kind of a long time to go without going to the bathroom. I know our nurses and teachers out there are pretty, um, that's kind of the space that they live in, which long-term, it's usually those are the women that I'm seeing like in their 60s to 80s that then have urinary issues um, because that's not a great norm to be at. But something you said that I want to bring up is like when you're relaxed and everything is good and those muscles can relax. Well, um, that kind of brings me to like you're relaxed, you're out, you know, you're having a night with your friends and you go to a bar and you go in the bathroom and it's disgusting. And you're like, ew, I don't want to sit down on that toilet. So what do we all do? I think every female at some point in their life has hovered over the toilet and did not actually sit on the toilet. And that is also something that is not optimal for your pelvic health because in order to stabilize you in that position so that your butt doesn't touch the nasty toilet seat with who knows what on it, your pelvic floor muscles are a trunk stabilizer. So they're going to contract a little bit just to hold you up. And even if you think you're relaxing, you're still a little bit more contracted than if you were completely sitting on the toilet. So please, please, please sit on the toilet, bring Clorox wipes in your purse, put down toilet paper, whatever you need to do to feel comfortable to actually sit. But um, if you're not completely relaxing on the toilet, whether that's the muscles aren't relaxing or you're physically not putting your butt on the toilet seat, um, those can change the 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 flow of the stream as well. So Jocelyn, I'm gonna come to our last question here and it was interesting, I think. Um, somebody said it was a follow-up. I'm not sure what it was a follow-up to, but they wanted to know what trimester is ligament laxity the worst or most noticeable? So I actually wasn't sure about this. Um, there's so many things that we don't know and I think um, sometimes our greatest strength is knowing what we don't know. So I did what any good scientist would do, and so I went to the literature, um, and there's actually quite a bit of discrepancy. Um, I looked at a study that was published this year, and because I'm in statistics, I was pleasantly surprised that I've been able to use this four weeks of statistics to interpret the results, but the results were a little misleading. So the results put all these fancy things out and they said, you know, we, we saw these p-values were less than 0.05 and blah, blah, blah. And based on that, they said that the second trimester was actually when you have the most ligamentous laxity. But if you actually break the study down a little bit more, they only had 17 people in the study. So that's a really small sample size. And if you have a small sample size, you really can't generalize that to the whole population. When we do studies, we really wanna try to capture a sample of people that are the most representative of the entire population. So that would be, in our sample of pregnant women, we wanna to try to capture every type of pregnant woman that could ever exist. Which, if you think about how many women are pregnant in the world, and then you take 17 of them, that's probably not a very good representation. And then if you look at it a little bit further, it's like, well, 
we think that it's the second trimester based on these measurements, but really there was kind of a poor correlation, so we really can't say. So all I really took away from that study is your first trimester is definitely not the time that you have the most ligamentous laxity, but it's still a little bit up in the air if it's either your second trimester or your third trimester. So I don't know if you've read anything or if you have any thoughts on that, but that's kind of when I didn't know, that's, it went to the literature, and it sounds like the literature is not really sure either. That sounds about consistent. <laughs> I'm boring our listeners with all my statistics. I need to take up a different hobby. <laughs> Before we started recording, I said, Jenny, you sound so nerdy. But I'm yeah. <laughs> Anyways, all right guys, so those were all the questions that got posted. Um, I think Jocelyn and I are probably going to start moving on to some other topics. We will definitely come back to the hip at a later date on the podcast, and her and I will both continue to post things about the hip intermittently on our Instagrams. Um, but what we are going to start doing from this point forward, not every episode, but we're going to start bringing guests on the podcast. Sometimes we'll bring other physical therapists or healthcare professionals on. Those episodes might be geared a little bit more for other healthcare professionals. Um, we're also going to be bringing on just regular people. We're going to be bringing on moms. We're going to be bringing on athletes, women that have these issues, pelvic floor dysfunction, hip pain, back pain, rib pain, pain with running, pain with lifting. Um, we really just want to get the perspective from the patient. We want to get your perspective. So our next guest is actually going to be, or I guess our inaugural guest is going to be my really good friend, Kayla Hoffmeyer. Um, she is a beach body coach. Um, when I looked at her Instagram, she's like thousands of followers. And I was like, man, this girl, she's like huge following. Um, she posts a ton of uh, motivational stuff daily, so once we have her on, we'll get you her information. But she actually just had a baby uh, three months ago, I believe. She's getting ready to go back to work tomorrow, and she is just getting back into beach body and working out. So we're going to be talking to her about some of the challenges that she's overcome, how exercise has really helped to build resilience in her life, and really what life looks like for her now. Um, so Jocelyn, any uh, final words here for our listeners? Um, if you, if there's any topics that you're interested in, feel free to reach out to Jenny or myself on Instagram or on other social media platforms that you find us because we're doing this for you. It's not for us. Although I'm learning so much. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit for us too, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, we have, uh, a lot of cool people that are on the lineup in the future. So keep watching and thank you for listening. All Jess, right, Joss, until you. next time. I know. Bye. Bye. I miss you already. <laughs> no.